Morning, friends. So you're listening there. Russ Taft, the singer who did that song a zillion and a half years ago, um, he says these words, all that can shake is going to shake. All that is, all that can quake will quake. To bring the fact from the fake, all that can shake will shake. Those are great words. But he's really just paraphrasing from the Bible. Um, you may not know this, but in Hebrews 12 and verse 27, it says, all creation will be shaken so that only unshakable things will remain. Uh, that's why we do a series called Faithways. It's not just to utilize the cheesy word that I made up a while ago, but that faithways are actually a thing. They're a thing. So I began last week talking about the faithways of life, and the truth is that none of us, none of us are exempt from these. We'd like to think that we are, but we're not. And today we are going to be looking at what might be the most famous faith quake in history. It begins in the book of Job. First chapter, here's how it starts. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom, it says. So the story begins in the land of Uz. We just got to figure out where Uz was. Okay? Verse 3 says it's in the east. East of what? East of Israel. Job was not a part of Israel. The book of Job is quite a unique book in the sense that it's not connected to the story of Israel. Um, you could... You could kind of paint the setting like this, a long time ago in a land far, far away. Now the faithquakes of this book are the faithquakes of the human race. We're all, we're all the story of Job. And in the beginning of the story, everything as, is as we think it should be. It says that Job is a righteous man. He's a cautious man as well. He even offers sacrifices for his children. It says, perhaps, maybe, maybe they curse God in their hearts. Maybe they're sinful, and I don't know it. He's taking no chances, so he offers sacrifices for them. But faith wakes are coming to the land of Job. Us will be a place where very bad things happen to a very, very good man. And us will be a place not just where suffering comes, but it comes with hair on it and no warning and no explanation. Everybody, friends, everybody in this room will spend some time in that place. We'll spend some time in the land of us. Some of you are there right now. And if you're not, some of you around you is. Now, there's a little shift in scenery here when we, uh, after we've read what we've read, and now we move up to verse number six. There's a real radical change in scenery. Now think of this story, the whole story of Job, like a play that takes place on two different stages. There's an upper stage. That's the activity that's going on in heaven. And then there's a lower stage. And that features the activity that is going on down on this earth where we stand. Now we, the readers, 
We see and we know what's going on in both settings, but the, the characters on Earth do not. All they see is the lower stage. They know nothing about what's happening on the upper stage that we're about to read right now. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Listen to these words. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Listen to this response. The Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So, Satan goes out from the presence of God. He leaves the upper stage and goes to the lower stage to bring calamity upon the life of Job. And I won't go through all the details of this, but Job loses everything. Loses his wealth, his livestock, he loses his servants, he even loses his entire family other than his wife. All the children of God. And we now wait to see his response to see if Satan was indeed right about Job. Verse 1. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And it wraps it up by saying, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So we're told here that, that Job grieves. And he worships. He falls to the ground in worship. He speaks words of blessing and praise. And now in chapter 2, we switch back to the upper stage. In chapter 2, in verse 3, God is speaking and he says, Job still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Now listen to this response. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. And once again, the Lord says to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So he's given some leash, but not complete freedom. You must spare his life. Now from this point on in the story, all of the action takes place on the lower stage. And at first glance, for most readers, this action in heaven looks pretty weird. It's confusing. Looks like a cosmic wager between God and Satan, and God is just kind of using Job and his family as pawns to win a bet. That's what it looks like. I don't think that's what's going on at all. The key question on the upper stage really is the key question in the whole book. And it comes from chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? In essence, this is what Satan is saying. Job is devoted to you, God, and he worships you because it's in his self-interest to do so. You scratch his back, he scratches yours. You think Job loves you. The truth is, Job loves you the way children love the ice cream man. You shut off the faucet of blessing, watch how fast he shuts off the faucet of devotion. So we think of the book of Job as a book where God is on trial. 
Like with all the suffering in the world, can there be a good God? And on the lower stage, that's the primary question. But we've seen the upper stage. We've seen what's gone on up there. And really, this is a book where the human race is on trial. And Satan, the adversary, the accuser, is the prosecuting attorney. We're going to move on. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So, Job now gets hit with a whole second wave of suffering. And this time there's some differences in his response. This time he doesn't fall to the ground and worship. He goes and sits on the ash sheet. He's sitting at the town dump. Maybe he's grieving. Maybe he's isolated. Because the people around him may suspect that he's got leprosy, which was made you an outcast. This is Job's wife's comment in verse 9. His wife says to Job, Curse God and die. Curse God and die. This could not have been very encouraging to Job. That is not a Tony Robbins thing to say. <laughs> and you know, Mrs. Job gets dumped on a lot. Um, but think about this for a moment. She too has lost everything. She's lost her ten children. All of them. She used to be in the wealthiest family in the East, and now she's going to be left Utterly alone and destitute. Obviously, Job is not going to last very long, and she's going to be by herself. So she gives voice to some thoughts that have undoubtedly already gone through Job's mind. And Job says these words in, in verse 10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job is struggling to understand now. Is God the kind of being who would send evil? Is God really good? Now I want us to see the, the phrase at the end of verse 10. It says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. That's a little hint of what I think is going on inside of him now. Because if you remember after the first wave of suffering, in chapter 1 it says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now there's a little qualification here. Job didn't sin in what he said, but I think Job is beginning to struggle on the inside. And I touched a little bit on this last week. But in Job 2.11, here's what it says. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they sent out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That tells us in verse 12 that their love is so strong and their grief is so sharp for, for Job that they plan to sit next to him and take on his anguish, sitting with him for seven days and seven nights just to help absorb his pain. I want to pause there for a moment and ask you a question. Do you have friends that would do that for you? Do you have friends who would be there for you? Do you have friends that you can count on who will be there for you when trouble comes? If you don't, I do hope that you will develop a few real friends. I know it takes time. I know it takes time and you're really, really busy. But it's worth it. It's worth the time and the effort, friends. I hope you start building those kinds of long-term relationships. Listen, listen to your gray-haired pastor. I hope you don't wait for the day when you end up in the land of us. Because in the church of Jesus, nobody should ever have to sit on the ash sheet by themselves. Now, Job's friends are not perfect. 
You'll see in a few minutes. But they are not perfect. But they're friends, and they're there. Okay, so after seven days of silence, Job speaks. Imagine the tension that has built up. Seven days and nights of silence. His friends are waiting to hear what he's going to say. And if, if, just if, 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 if he could just repeat what he says in, in chapter 1. The Lord is good. The Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. If you could just repeat that, the whole test is over, and it's a really short book. But look at chapter 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Say those words with me, would you? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That's the kind of thing that keeps Job off the motivational speaker circuit. And for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out bitterness, confusion, anger, and sorrow towards God. So much so that his three friends that are there, they can't stand it. And finally, they respond. And his friends' names are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And so far, we start getting a glimpse of the tenor of their conversation. It becomes a series of Job's speeches and their well-intentioned but misguided responses. Mostly it's arguments that go back and forth. Now think about this. Think about this. Job has lost his ten children. He's lost his health. He's lost everything he owns. He's lost everything. And then Bill Dad, the doofite, says something that breaks the needle on a stupid meter. He says, your family died because they sinned. They had it coming, and you probably did too. And Job goes close to God. Then Zophar, the third friend, gets in his face in chapter 11, what he says. If you put away the sin that is in your hand, and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. Then, free from fault, you will lift up your face. You'll stand firm and without fear. Saying, put away the sin that's in your hand. In other words, Job, your sin. You're, you brought this suffering on. Now, here's what we need to understand. All three friends of Job are giving voice to really one central thought, which was the primary theology of suffering in that day. It's written about in what scholars now call Mesopotamian wisdom literature. It's sometimes called the doctrine of retribution. And the idea is real simple. It's goodness results in prosperity. Wickedness brings on suffering. So, Job, if you're suffering, you must have brought this on yourself. If you would just repent, everything's going to work out, and you won't suffer because God doesn't let good people suffer. The arguments that are voiced by Job's friends are repeated way too often in churches today. Suffering people say those that make it worse are Christians who say things like, if you just pray with enough faith, you'd be healed. Implication, it's your fault. Or if you just find Satan, you wouldn't be experiencing this. Or if your suffering is a wake-up call, you need to figure out what you've done wrong and repent. Put away the sin that's in your hand and everything will be fine. heard it said that arguing with some people is like playing chess with a pigeon. You can make all the brilliant moves you want, but at some point in time, the pigeon's going to knock over all the pieces, crap on the board, and strut around like it won anyway. <laughs> Joe's friends are the pigeons here. 
And they keep pointing the finger of blame. If you're suffering, you have sinned. If you're suffering, you have sinned. Jesus rejects that idea, by the way. You know that? In Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about a current event. He's, he mentions a tower in Jerusalem called the Tower of Siloam. And this tower had collapsed, fell on some people. 18 people died. And all the people in Israel were saying, well, they must have been guilty of something. God is punishing all these people. Obviously, that's why the tower fell on them. But Jesus says these words. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. No. And Job's friends keep pounding on him. You must have done something to deserve this. And Job cries out at one point, how long will you crush me and torment me with your words? I hope. I hope we're not a community like that. Job never says that he never sinned. He doesn't say that. He just says that before his life was blessed, now his life is a nightmare, and there's no corresponding catastrophic sin to account for. He's trying to make sense of it. And they keep railing on him. So why, why did this happen to you, Job? Why is God doing this to you? Job says, I don't know. I don't know. And if his friends were a little wiser, they'd say, I don't know either. And so Job pours his heart out before God, and he does something that people in anguish often do. And that is to contradict themselves a lot. So he questions God, and he claims to God. He yells at God, and he yells for God. He's all over the map. But mostly he challenges God. And in chapter 23, here's what he says. If only I knew where to find him, meaning God. If only I knew where to find God. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Know what he's saying? He said, I wish you could sue God. I wish I could take God to court like Judge Judy. I wish I could show up in court and, and, and sue his pants off and we would just, you know, I wish we could just fight it out man to man. This is where it's getting a little dicey now. He's going over the edge. And then in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. Job 38 wants us. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. What do you think that one was like? And the words that God speaks, he starts by saying, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. This is where Job's knees start knocking. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? He goes on and on and on. And you will notice if you take the time to read this book, as you read through, that God never seems to get around to answering Job's questions of why. He could have done that. He could have told him about the upper stage and the lower stage, but he didn't. Instead, he just asks a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. Now, why does God do this? Is he just trying to show Job that he's smarter than him? Is he just sick of Job's whining? I think God is pointing out that so Job can understand that he has a finite Mind and a very limited understanding and point of view. He's not God, period. And to the end of his life, Job never does find out, as far as we know, he never finds out about that conversation that took place over him in heaven. But Job finds out something better. He finds out who God is. 
And that's enough. Because the hinge of this whole book comes in chapter 42, verse 5. Job speaks these words. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust, dust and ashes. This doesn't mean he's saying, I hate myself now. It's not what he's saying. It's a Hebrew way of talking about repentance. God says, God says to Job's friends in verse number 7, there's a little comedy in this one. Job speaks, and he said, I mean, God speaks, says, after the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now imagine their amazement. Job's been whining and complaining about God for the entire book, and these guys think they're sticking up for God the whole time. Then God shows up and says, nope, Job was right, you were wrong. And of course, after what happened to Job, this could not have been good news to his friends. And he says these words, if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. And I'm sure that that brought up a pretty interesting conversation between Job and his friends. But eventually Job prays and God forgives them. Job 42 is showing up in uh, verse 12. It's the last passage we're going to look at here. This is interesting. In lots of ways. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoga oxen, and a thousand donkeys. Now, for those numbers people, you will notice that's exactly twice as much as he had when he was blessed early in his life. Twice as much. Goes on to say, he also had seven sons and three daughters. That's not twice as many kids because that wouldn't be a blessing. So, <laughs> um, stay with me. The first, the first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Corinne Hapush. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them inheritance along with the brothers. Now there's a lot of stuff in here that we tend to miss, but we just jump out of the ancient readers because it's so unusual. First, the writer gives the name of Job's daughters, but not his sons. That's unheard of. In ancient Hebrew genealogies, it would never, ever happen. Sons were the ones whose names were mentioned. And not only that, but he gives really weird names to his daughters. Usually, um, usually Hebrew names are very, very serious. They talk about character or virtue. These three names are all about the beauty of creation. Jemima is the name for dove, a bird that was prized for its beauty. Keziah means cinnamon, that was a prized spice in that time. And the oddest one is Kirin Hapuj. You think I'm making this up, but I'm not. Translated, it means horn of eyeshadow. He named his daughter after makeup. <laughs> it's like naming your daughter Clinique or Revlon or something. And not, as, not only does he give these strange, snappy names, but he gives them an inheritance. And in an ancient, male-dominated world, a father with seven sons would never, ever dream of doing that, because in the ancient world, sons were seen as strategic. Daughters were not. But Job cuts his daughters in on the deal. Why does the writer include this stuff? I think it's because now... Job is becoming gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous, and he gets for no reason at all. Sound like anyone you know? Sounds a lot like God. This episode shows that Job allowed suffering to shape him, to shape his character. And the book of Job is written not in response to some cosmic wager. It was written so that you and I could know the truth about God, that he can and he will 
shape us through our pain in ways that no other circumstances can. Believe it or not, what can come out of a Job experience, a faith quakes experience, is genuine love for God. I mean, real, deep, long-lasting, genuine love for God. I've got a short video that I want you to watch. It'll just take a few minutes, but uh, take a look at this. God could have left Job alone. Years ago, I saw an injury to my voice. At the time, I was a pastor and a worship leader.
you. And if you're wicked, he leaves you alone. The last thing you want is for God to leave you alone. Or do not leave me alone. I have got to know you. I have got to see you. I have got to have you. And I want everything you've got from me. Sunday.